0: Good morning. Morning. Uh. All right. I've got first line open in prayer, but Rob kind of did that for me, so first box ticked. Um, Okay, Uh, Rob asked me this morning um, how I'm going to end my sermon today as the person who's like, what do you call it again? He's the MC for the service today. He's he's probably wondering what kind of you know turds I'm going to throw him in to try to deal with by the time I'm finished. <laughs> and I told him I'm very sorry. I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to finish. Um, and then I went on explaining. He said he said, "How do you what? How do you formulate yourself a sermon kind of thing?" And I said, "Well, usually I start off with an idea. You know how you do your whole scientific kind of like idea. Then what do you, what do you call it? Like you have." Conclusion at the end, beginning you have your hypothesis, and the center you have your, you know, trying to figure it all out and then your conclusion. Whatever the scientific word is. <coughs> anyway, so if, with me I usually have my idea and I think I know how it's going to conclude and then about halfway through it almost always completely changes. So I yeah, yeah. Let's just say this was much more complicated than I thought it was gonna be when I decided this is what I was gonna talk about. So, to start. Can I please get a few uh, examples or explanations of what you think sin is? So can I get a hand up, a definition of the word sin? I've got one in the back there. Wages. Anybody else? A definition of what you think the word sin is. It's like one of the most common words used in the Bible. Disobedience. Anybody else? Nobody's having a try. You think it's a trick question? (laughs) Okay. It's not really a trick question. I think it's I think it's quite common that um, the word sin is usually used to mean like a breaking of the law or violating of the law or like transgressing against God's law or his will or something like that. Um, now, the best explanation I could find for the actual English word sin is, um, I looked on a whole bunch of message boards, a whole bunch of definitions, it was really, really hard to find the origin of the actual word, like the English word sin. So the best I could find was an article that said, Perhaps you are asking the origin of the English word sin. The word sin comes from the Middle English word spelt S-I-N-N-E, which is derived from the Old English word spelt S-Y-N-N, which is probably the word deriving from the Germanic root sutan, sunta, or Latin word sons, both of which mean guilty. It would appear that this word has maintained virtually the same connotation throughout most of its history. So, the actual word sin is like, it seems as though almost nobody really knows where it actually came from or what exactly it actually means. That doesn't mean to say that we as Christians don't have an understanding of what the word sin means. It's come to mean, like, it's not a word that you would use in, like, your common, like, Conversations with somebody who wasn 't a christian you 're not going to just start talking about the word sin it 's something that has a very very Christian connotation it has a very Christian meaning and as Christians we think that we understand what it means okay now if we were to read into some of our um, some of our Bible verses the definition of sin that we that we all kind of presume what it means, then um, we get some very very disturbing um, results, which is, one of, which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is because as a Bible study group we had gone through First John. And in First John there is um, some verses from chapter 3 verses 4 to 12 which say, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little Children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. however has whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of, de- of the devil are manifest whoever does sorry, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain who was the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. So if we follow the definitions of sin, what does this passage mean? Like our common definitions of sin. It's like a disastrous passage. It means that pretty much nobody can be saved because anybody who's ever made a mistake is basically completely stuffed. Like there's nothing you can do about it. The complication comes in the fact that in Hebrew, which the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the New Testament is written in Greek, in Hebrew, there are 10 words that are used as the word sin. Now, this is when you use the King James Version to go through the Strong's Concordance, which the Strong's Concordance categorizes every single Greek and Hebrew word, but it uses the King James to interpret it. So if you went through all the other versions of the Bible, there's heaps of other translations that translate even more words as sin, and it can get up to about like 30 words that are used, whether English word sin is used to replace like a Hebrew or a uh, Greek word. So you've got 10 Hebrew words and 6 Greek words in the King James Version. So the first one is avon. Avon implies iniquity, and iniquity means, in the Hebrew, like crookedness, like somebody who's crooked or something that's crooked. It doesn't always mean a person. It can, mean even, it can even be used as something saying something is bent. Pesha means trespass. Now, trespass is a violation of earthly trust. So it's always used where it talks about a person individually violating the trust of another person. So it's like, um, it's used when Abraham, I think it was Abraham, his, no, 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 it wasn't Abraham, sorry, it was, uh, so, I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was. Who was the person who their daughter had taken idols from their father? Rachel had taken idols from her father. So, um, uh, and Rachel's husband was? Jacob, thank you very much. Okay, so Jacob is saying Jacob is saying to his father-in-law, which is Rachel's father, how have I violated your trust? Because he thought he hadn't taken the idols. So by violating his earthly trust, he uses the word pesha. Asham means a trespass offering. So for violating an earthly trust, you had to make an offering. So the pesha was that offering. But that is also sometimes translated as sin offering. Ashma, which is a trespass or a violation of God's trust. So, not an earthly trust, but a violation of God's trust. Shagag implies ignorance, but it's also sometimes translated as sin. So, basically, if you're just ignorant, you don't know something. And let's say you make a mistake just because you don't understand or don't know something. Shagag. Shagar is like backsliding or walking away. So, like you know the truth, but you're kind of like backing away from the truth or like erring away from the truth. Okay, and then now we get to four words which are from a root of one word, which is the most commonly used word for sin. That word is kata or kat. So kat is someone carrying the physical burden of a sin or like an error. Kata is a fault, a failure, or a miss, Okay, and then the second one sound, the third one, sorry, sounds almost exactly like kata, except it has two ts. But that that changes it from a verb into a noun, which puts it onto a person. So instead of a kata, which is a fault or a miss as a verb, like an action word, like the word miss kata was even used when it described Hebrew soldiers who could use a sling. You remember David used a sling. It said that those Hebrew soldiers could swing a sling and they could fling it at a hare and not kata, so not miss. So when you take Qatar and I can't even pronounce it, it sounds exactly the same, but it has two T's. It changes it from a verb into a noun. So it changes that missing into an actual person. Okay, so the only way to kind of like, it's kind of hard to understand, but if you did it in the English, let's say you had a word as a verb, the word crime. So if somebody commits a crime, that's an action. So that's your verb. Now, what would you call somebody who commits crimes? A criminal So you're you're talking about the difference between the word crime and the word criminal. So the personification of the word or the action. Okay, I'm sorry. I had an apology in the top, which I forgot to say, saying that this is probably going to be very dry. And it's going to be more like a lecture, probably, than a sermon. So I hope you can continue to follow me. All right, now the last one, which is the one that I think is the most uh, misinterpreted. It implies a punishment for a failure, and it's kata'a. So you've got the four words, kat, kata, and then the same sound in kata, but noun, and then kata'a, which implies a punishment for a failure. So it's the same word that means to miss, but it implies the actual punishment for you missing. Okay, then we get into Greek, and it gets even more confusing. So you've got hamateo. Um, which means the same as kata'a oh which means the same as kat, which is like to miss, to fail, or to error. And then you have Hamatima, which is like the totality of evil deeds. And then you have Hamatia, which is a fatal character flaw of a protagonist. I'll get back to that later. I know that's a complicated explanation, but that's a very, very important word. Hamatolos which is someone devate, devoted to error. So this is the p- personification of somebody who like, is a sinful person. They are devoted to error. It's the word used for tax collectors. And when they ever say he, he, he um, what do they say? They always criticize Jesus that he hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. So that's the word, is hamatolos. And then you have anamatolos. Uh, sorry, anamatitos, which is without error. So somebody who has no error. And then you have paraptima," which is a trespass or a violation of the law, but it's the same word in Greek as they used in Hebrew. So I want to focus on four of the, four of the most commonly used words. So like I was saying, that all I'm trying to point out is how confusing it gets in the Hebrew and the Greek when you take the one word sin and you see how many words it's applied to in the Bible. It's applied to many, many, many words. Okay, So basically all I'm trying to point out is it's not that simple. The very first time the word sin is used in the Bible... The exact verse, uh, the, the verse that we looked at, John uh, 3, verses 4 to 12, it actually references it, which I think is important. It's God speaking to Cain. If you do well, you will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So the word sin here is the Hebrew word kata'a. Okay, so it is the noun which is important It also does not just mean sin as we know it. It implies the personal penalty, payment, or debt for sin. Okay? So it's been translated 182 times as sin. Once as sinner, once as sinful, 117 times as a sin offering, two times as punishment, and two times as purification. All the times that it's used as simply sin, so whenever the English translates kata'a into the word sin, Almost every time you read in those verses, it can be seen that is being used as a payment or a penalty sense. It can almost in all circumstances be replaced with the literal sin offering, but in in a figurative sense, it can mean your own personal debt, which is owed for your own personal failure. Okay, so for example, if we read back into the, the verse about Cain, the same verse in Genesis concerning Cain would read if we did it in my personal interpretation of what the word means if you do well you will be accepted if you do not do if you do not do well your own personal debt which is owed for your failure lies at the door and its desire is to rule over you another example is in exodus 3230 it says now it came to pass on the next day that moses said to the people you have committed a great sin and that's a different hebrew word it's not kata'ah. So now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make an atonement for the personal debt which is owed for your failure. Okay, the one word, sin. The same in Isaiah 43:24. You have bought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied, this is God talking to the uh, Israelites, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your personal debt owed for your failures, and you have wearied me with your iniquity. Try not to repeat. I've got some notes that have doubled up on themselves. Sorry. Okay. So the literal meaning of kata, which is the word that kata'a comes from, is just to, like we had said before, to miss, to error, or to fail. Okay? So why is it important that kata'a is a verb, sorry, kata'a is a verb, and kata'a is a noun? Okay, so that's what I had described before, the difference between the crime and the criminal. Okay, so compared... To the Hebrew kata, remember we had the two words that I said? We had kata and kata, which sound exactly the same. One has two Ts, one doesn't have two Ts. So that is like the comparison of crime with criminal. But kata'a does something very, very, very strange, okay, which is difficult because it kind of can't be described with the English language, all right? Because it doesn't just make, like, kata and kata, it makes it a noun in the way that in English something becomes a noun. You become personalized with the action. But kata'a, for whatever reason, how it does it, I don't know, but like I was saying, it adds the punishment. It adds the element of you owe something because of your fault. It's been translated sinner only once and sinful only once, which is what you would imagine the English would do if it turned it into a noun, but it's reversed for kata'a. It appears to make the personalization the personalization of sin, not as meaning that a person is exceedingly sinful, but implying that a necessary personal payment or offering in the form of a sacrifice is, is necessary to pay a personal debt. And the the way I've, and I know it might sound confusing, the way I've been able to like kind of understand it is basically just by finding that word kata'a, seeing every single time it's used in the Hebrew, and almost every single time it's used in the Hebrew, it is used to explain the need to offer a sacrifice for whatever kata you have uh, committed. Okay, so that's the, that's the two Hebrew words I want to focus on. Now, there are two Greek words that are basically, okay, it's hard to explain. There's a, have you, has anybody ever heard of the Septuagint version of the Bible? The Septuagint version of the Bible? No. Who's heard of Alexander the Great? You guys have heard of Alexander the Great? Okay. Alexander the Great conquers the modern world, including all of the areas around Jerusalem. Okay. And he does this around, I think it's around about 300 to 400 BC. Okay. So 3 to 400 years before Christ. So interesting fact, when Alexander was on the border of Jerusalem, ready to conquer it, he, um, sorry, and he had already conquered all the surrounding regions. The high priest in the temple had a dream in which God told him not to worry and to approach Alexander's army wearing white robes as he reaches the city. So, when he sees Alexander coming towards the city with his um, army, he opens up the gates and walks out to meet him. The high priest is dressed in purple and scarlet, wearing a golden crown and the, with the name of God written onto it. And the Levites are all dressed in white. Alexander is awestruck, and the priests uh, and Alexander is also surrounded by all the people of the region that he's conquered that are all waiting to destroy Jerusalem, which Alexander has promised them. So you imagine all of Israel's enemies all around them. They've not been able to beat them. This guy rocks into town. Alexander, he's conquered like pretty much the entire known world. And he's going to come and he's going to conquer Jerusalem. And all these people who have all been waiting for Jerusalem to fall are all excited, waiting for Alexander to come. And he's told them, when I come to Jerusalem, you guys can just ransack it and destroy it. So they're all excited. They're all surrounding Alexander, but as the priests all come out wearing white robes and the high priest in his purple robes, Alexander is absolutely awestruck. The high priest takes him into the temple where they show him a scroll, which has been written by Daniel, predicting Alexander's life, okay? So now when you read Daniel, it doesn't say exactly, this is Josephus writing, he wrote the history at the time, um, but I would presume that what they showed him was Daniel 11.2, which says, now then I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia. So this is Daniel writing when the first king is in Persia. He's saying another three kings are gonna arise in Persia after this king. And then a fourth who will be far richer than all of the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Now this is exactly what happened. There was a Persian king who had stirred up everyone against Greece. Okay, then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. So this is presumably supposed to be Alexander, right? After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up, parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power that he has exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. So obviously Alexander wouldn't have been as impressed by that, but he was impressed by the fact that it says that a king will arise who will rule with great power. The crazy thing is that that's exactly what happened after Alexander died. His kingdom didn't go to any of his children. It got broken up by his four generals, and then they fought amongst each other and basically lost everything. Okay, So exactly what Daniel had prophesied is exactly what ended up happening. After Alexander had heard this prophecy, which was written a hundred years before his birth, he basically gave the high priest everything he wanted, which was for the Jews all over Alexander's kingdoms to be able to practice their laws independently of Grecian law, which Alexander allowed. Okay, so you imagine, um, try and imagine yourself in this time as a Jew. Okay, so you have for quite a few years now, you've had like a Persian... Uh, king over you, who's kind of ruled fairly strictly over you, and then somebody's come in and destroyed, like basically taken over all the Persian lands, and they're ruling over you, and then all of a sudden you get the freedom, which you haven't had like for a while, to be able to practice your own personal religion Uh, which was Judaism, you're allowed to make, they weren't allowed to make pilgrimages back to Jerusalem, to the temple. So now they're allowed again to make their pilgrimages back to Jerusalem, to the temple. So they have religious freedom, basically, which is something we have today. It's not common in history, okay? So they have religious freedom. So because they have religious freedom and they're they're living in a time um, where Alexander had built a great library in Alexandria, which sadly has burnt down, like many historians are very sad when they think about the fact that the Alexandrian library had burned. But all the Jews in the area were being educated in Aristotelian virtue ethics and philosophy, and philosophy, but what they wanted was to be able to read their biblical scripture in a language which they spoke every day. So the language that they spoke every day was Greek. They did not speak Hebrew. Hebrew was used only by the high priests to read that, uh, the scriptures. Okay, so it's as if... Like centuries ago, we had our Bible was written in Latin, and the like all the, um, and in the Catholic Church, you weren't allowed to let the people read the read the scriptures. They had to be interpreted by the by the priests. So the priests were allowed to read them in Latin. The people were not allowed to read them in Latin. So it would be the same thing as if we you wanted your Bible in English so that you could read it for yourself, but the priest was like, no, we get to read it in Latin. Okay, so the priests could read it in Hebrew. The people didn't speak Hebrew. They all spoke Greek. So they wanted a Greek interpretation of their Bible. So uh, it wasn't Alexander. It was King Ptolemy. He basically gathered 70 of the best scholars together and they created the Septuagint version of the Bible. Now, Septuagint just means 70 because there were 70 scholars who worked on it. And the Septuagint version of the Bible took... I think it took almost 70 years, actually. So it was like 70 scholars, took 70 years, so it's called the Septuagint version of the Bible. Now, Greece at the time had like a Shakespearean or like Steven Spielberg-type figure, all right? And his name was Aristotle. Who's heard of Aristotle? Yep. So Aristotle, he actually tutored Alexander the Great, okay? So he was his teacher, and uh, uh Aristotle, he was the, the father of what we call today virtue ethics, okay, so he was, a, he was an ethics and philosophy and political teacher, um, but he was like, basically the ideas that he had portrayed are ideas that we still use today, a lot of them we still use today, but they were the first time any of the things that he had suggested had been suggested, okay, but what he had famously done was he had famously took his concepts and gone, okay, Not everybody wants to, like, sit here like you guys are and listen to me talk like this for however long to try to learn, like, the very complex things that he had kind of thought out. So what he thought the best way to do it was, which is what made him so famous, was that he knew that people like stories. So he created Poems and plays in which he would put his ethics into the poems and plays so that people would start to understand the concept of what the ethics would be as they played out in a scenario that you would be entertained by as you watched it instead of just listening to somebody dryly talking for like three hours trying to explain to you what virtue ethics were. Okay. His characters and his plays needed to be complex. Up until then, um, a hero was very plainly a hero and a villain was very plainly a villain. But what he did was, he took the example of character flaws, which we still use in our greatest movies today. Like, if you think about, um, so oh sorry, sorry. He would take, he would complicate his characters by taking his heroes, and he would give them what he called a hamatia, okay? And this hamatia was a fatal character flaw, an Achilles heel or a weakness. So it meant that no matter who your hero was, no matter how great he was, they would still have some type of fault, something that they would be wrestling with or trying to deal with. And if you think about that in today's movies, who is some of your favourite characters? Like, if you go to the Marvel universe, you've got like Thor, whose hamartia is his constant obfuscation of his responsibility to rule. Okay, so he's supposed to be like um, a god figure who's supposed to rule, but he keeps running away from the idea of ruling. Okay, you look at somebody like Tony Stark. Okay, his hamartia is his ego. All right, so his ego constantly gets in his own way. He is constantly confused by the fact. Is his desire to do the right thing only for the glory and praise, or does he want to do the right thing because it's the right thing? So he's constantly struggling with that, and you see that throughout the movies. That's what makes his character interesting, because it's a lot more real. If you're a DC fan, then Superman's harmatia in basic form is okay? but in a much more complex form, it's like his struggle with managing the godlike status he's given by being kind of like an all-powerful figure. So Aristotle's work was widely known for like 250 years before the Septuagint was written. So this concept of hamatea had been getting worked out for like 250 years. Okay, so by the time you get to a bunch of scholars sitting down to go over the Greek language to work out what Greek words they're going to use to replace um, uh, Hebrew words, what word do they use to replace chata and chata'a? Okay? The Greek and Hebrew words... Oh, scholars, sorry, choose to use the Greek word hamatia, a fatal character flaw, to mean chata'a, which is the personal debt that you owe for your, for your failure. But it seems to keep its meaning for owing a debt, as shown in the Lord's Prayer. As you read the Lord's Prayer in Luke eleven four, 4, it says, forgive us our sins, our hamartia, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Okay, so it doesn't say, that word indebted there doesn't mean like somebody else's sins, it actually means debts, somebody else's debts. So it's comparing your sins to also a debt that somebody owes you. Okay, so the idea of debt is still in the word harmatia. However, it has completely adopted the idea of like a fatal character flaw of an individual. Okay, so in summary, I know that's a lot. I'm very, very sorry. Okay, so in summary, hamatea is a Greek noun personifying the weakness or a character flaw of an individual because of which he owes a personal debt. Okay, hamatea now is the word that replaces chata. Okay, it is a verb and it's most often translated sinning, but it is a Greek verb describing missing the mark, failing or error. In Aristotelian poetry, it would describe an archer missing a target. Okay so the word chatar, uh, sorry yeah the word chata meant to miss like we had said before like the Hebrews could fling a swing at a hair and they would not chata okay so they used the word, the Greek word uh hama sorry hamatano no, which meant the same but it was used as an archery term so if you were an archer you take an aim at a at a target and you hamatano it means you missed your target As you go through the Gospels, the word hamatea is constantly referred to as Jesus forgiving sins, okay? So Hamatia. However, there is an implication that what he is actually doing is cancelling a debt, okay? So it's not just that he's forgiving you for something that you've done. It's as if there's a debt owed against you and he's forgiven the debt. He is cancelling the debt that we have incurred by the failures of our fatal character flaws. Just let that sink in for a second. I'm gonna say it again. Just, just, I know you. I might've lost your focus for a bit because it's been pretty like dry, but like, just, just let me, just focus for a second. Let me say this again and really think about it. He is canceling the debt that we have incurred by the failures of our fatal character flaws. So this month, we're supposed to be doing this series called Spiritual Detox, and I already had it on my heart to share about sin, and i had thought to myself like what better way to detox than like to stop sinning so i thought to myself what does it mean to stop sinning how do we stop sinning so that's why i started looking into it and that's what i mean by the fact that it became a lot more complex than i expected it to be because to stop sinning might mean something completely different to what we had ever presumed it might even mean maybe it means the same thing maybe it kind of means the same thing but it also has like more massive implications maybe it's not as bad as we thought it was it's a lot more complicated When Paul in Romans 6 tells us that we have died to sin, he is saying that our debt owed for our fatal character flaw was paid for with Christ's crucifixion. In fact, that man or woman with their faults was crucified with Christ. So that person, that protagonist, that person who, no matter how good they try to be, they still have these fatal flaws that they're still wrestling with. That person was crucified with Christ. That person is dead. So do we have a responsibility to not sin if hamatia, sorry, to not sin? If we're talking about the word harmatia, which means the fatal character flaw of an individual to which you owe a personal debt, then no. You have no responsibility to try to stop having a fatal character flaw, which has a responsibility for a personal debt because that personal debt has been canceled. So if the word is harmatia, then no if it is hammer to know our missing of the mark the errors and the failures that we make then yes we have a responsibility for that i think we get really 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 bogged down with who or what we think we are and we when we personally attack ourselves i've heard joe say what did you say what percentage of thought of yours is usually negative of your thought is usually negative. Now, 75% of your thought being negative, do you think that's more about the fact that you made a mistake, or that you think that you personally are something? I think that if you are judging yourself, you're going to have a lot more negative thought on judging who you think you are as an individual or a person. But if you look at yourself as a pure and perfect person who has died to Christ, been raised again as perfect, but you occasionally make a mistake, and all you need to do is judge yourself on your mistakes, not on who you actually are as a person, I think that's what the idea of Christ is. Rob spoke a couple of weeks ago, and he had said that you have to realize that your sin was not paid for up until the time that it's like, okay, I didn't accept Christ until I was this age. I'm going to live to this age, but like I accepted Christ here, so that's what he died for on the cross. It's like, no, he died for, even after you get saved, all of your sin. Hama to know is only used 40 time, 42 times in the New Testament, which when you compare it to hamatea, hamatea is used like hundreds of times in the New Testament. The discussion about hamatea in the New Testament is the predominant discussion. The discussion about the fact that you have a fatal character flaw that, has, that owes a personal debt, that needs to be paid for, is the main discussion. The discussion that you're going to trip up every now and then, it's like not a big discussion. Okay, it's there. I'm not going to try to pretend like it's not there. The discussion is there. But the discussion is nowhere near as important as the fact that your sin has been paid for. Your hamatia has been paid for. This could not be better represented than by Jesus' death on the cross, where his last words in Greek were tetelestai. Now, tetelestai is probably one of the most pregnant words you could ever use, and I think Jesus absolutely knew it. Tetelestai means like 12 different things, okay? It's commonly translated, it is finished, because that's what it meant. It meant that something was completed. But you know what it also meant? It also meant that a debt had been completely paid. The word tetelestai was often stamped across um, bills that you had, if you owed somebody a debt or you owed your taxes, once your taxes were paid, they would stamp across it, tetelestai. So paid, paid in full, completely paid. It was the same as if you were in jail and you had a certain amount of time that you had to fill while you were in jail and then once you had filled your time and you were free to go, tetelestai. It is finished, paid in full. I read a poem in church once. How many of you heard my poem on sin? Okay, I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to try really hard not to cry. But what I want to do is, I think I've figured out how I'm going to finish. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this poem, and then when I'm finished reading this poem, what I want is I just want everyone to bow their heads, okay? And... What I was kind of considering that I wanted to do was that I wanted everybody to think about like your errors or your mistakes or the things that you've done wrong and like repent for them or apologize for them or deal with that however you needed to deal with that with God. But I think what I really, really want to do is I want you to, I want you to do two things. I want you to do that. But I, I more want you to focus on the fact that your harmatia is completely paid for. Your harmatia is completely paid off. You absolutely have a nature or had a nature which in it owed a debt because no matter how good you were, no matter even if you were the hero of the story, you still had a fatal character flaw. You still had issues that you had to deal with. You still had your problems. That has been completely paid for. So that's what I want you to bow your heads when I'm finished the poem, or even if during the poem, bow your heads, focus on that, and I just want you to pray into that. And I want you to try to see yourself as that. I want you to try to see yourself as your debt being paid, your debt being completely cancelled. And then focus on the errors that you've made, okay? And the mistakes, the places where you've missed the mark, okay? Whether it's by accident, whether it's on purpose, and then I want you to just Ask God for forgiveness for those things and we're gonna try to move forward. And as we said, this is a time of spiritual detox. I think it's possible to live a life where you, where you don't sin. So that's what we're trying to aim for, okay? Is it okay that we make mistakes every now and then? Completely. But what we're trying to head for is we're trying to be perfect like he is perfect. When I ponder... Of the cross. My understanding comes to loss. A fragrant alabaster box prepared you for your death. I try my best to comprehend a person who was God and man, whose fate was sealed when time began to live and die and live again. Years before he walk, walked this earth and graced us with his holy birth. Moses, psalmists, prophets wrote of all that he would do where and when he would be born and as he grew how he'd be scorned the bastard son of Mary's pure and sweet virginity how he would cause the blind to see the deaf to hear the lame to leap the lepers, where's your leprosy yet by some he was despised they also, they also told us he'd be sold, but not for silver, not for gold. His sheep would scatter, scatter when they saw their hope was bound in chains. You see, they thought he'd come to rule, especially when he rode a mule, and to the city where he was to be seated on his throne. Instead, false witnesses were brought to accuse a man of whom they thought had claimed that he could break and rebuild the temple in three days. But when they charged him by the law to tell, him who, tell them who he claimed he was, the high priest sinned and tore his robes. But I ask you, did he lie? In the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, if this cup may pass from me, please, my father, let it be, if there is any other way. But not my will. Let yours be. As his sweat glands began to bleed, his followers all fell asleep as he awaited what would come. Pilate could find no fault in him, yet standing there in front of them, although this man had never sinned, the crowd roared, crucify. They struck him and cried, prophesy, who has struck you? Was it I? A crown of thorns I think will bind for you, your majesty beaten till his bones were seen he carried his own hanging tree cold and rusty nails hammered through his hands and feet as he hung there in disgrace all his bones were out of place his beard had been torn from his face he cried out paid in full but just before this chapter closed, they'd strike him with one final blow. A soldier would take up a spear and plunge it in his side. That day, every piece fell into place from a realm outside of time and space so that we could grasp eternal grace. But do we value what he did? I can't help but think that when I stray, In some strange, small, yet poignant way, I added to his pain that day as he was paying for my sin. Thank you for what you've done, Lord. Thank you that you took our burdens. That you paid our debts. And that even to this day, you still defend us. We repent, Lord God, for the areas where we've fallen short. Where we've missed your mark where we've erred and where we've failed but we recognize Lord God that as we apologize for these mistakes that we do it from a position of power a position of power which you bought for us with your blood
1: So we're in a series of detox, a spiritual detox, and you know, we all know that um, you know if we find'm going to somebody and I need to be accountable in regards to losing weight, they're going to ask me some questions, and they might not be questions that I really want them to ask, but the reality is, is it's actually a part of the detox system process and all of that. And I just feel like this morning that in the light of what Alan uh, has shared this morning, that's how we need to see this. I'm in detox. There's a new season. What we can't do is we can't take the old me into the new season. There's a scripture in the Bible that says that God can't put new wine in old wineskins because when you do, the old wineskins burst. So what that means is, is in the new season for each and every one of us that belong to this house, God wants to do something new in you. But to do that, He's got to change the old in you. Hamate. How do you know if that's word for you? Here, it's this. If as a Christian, when you do what you do and you feel guilty about it, that's because you don't know that your sins have been paid for. That's hamate. If you as a Christian, after you've done something that you think you shouldn't have done, then go out of your way to try to make it better, that's hamate. That's you not knowing that that debt is paid. And what happens is when we're Christians and we hold on to that, I hope I've got the right word there. When we're Christians and we hold on to hamate, all right, what that does is it stops me having confidence between me and God. And then when it, if it stops me from having confidence between me and God, what that means is, is that when I go to pray to God, I'm not really sure whether He's going to answer me. Because a hamate is in my life because I didn't understand that the debt was paid in full in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what I just want us to do is because it's a detox. It's it's a detox. It's okay to own it, all right? It is. It's okay to go, you know, that's me. So this morning, just what I want you to do, if you feel like you need to come up for prayer, that's okay. Come up for prayer. Alan would be most willing and loving to be able to pray for you. But you don't have to come up for prayer. But we do need to get it resolved. If you're really honest, you know, if you're going to be honest and be the Christian that God wants you to be on this journey, if this morning that you suffer from hamate, This morning what I want you to do is I just want you to stand up with your eyes closed and ask for the spirit of revelation to come on you that you'd understand that when Jesus said it's finished, he paid for all of it. Stop feeling guilty for your sins. There's a word. Stop feeling guilty for your sins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's paid for in Jesus' name. There's not a reason or excuse to go out and keep sinning. You can do that and then as, as, as Alan read, well, maybe you're the son of someone else. All right, but if you're a Christian, then stop feeling guilty for your sins because it's been paid for by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going we're to close up this tea and coffee next door. So, Father, we just want to thank you. We want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that we are in a season of change in Jesus' name. And I just want to pray, Lord God. You know, last week, you know, we heard from Joe and actually the blind man. He actually had to do something physically. He had to get up himself, Lord God, and he had to throw off the old robe. And it's just like you're saying. It's like, you know what, for some of us, Lord God, you're saying you need to do it yourself. And so, Father, I want to pray for courage in this season in Jesus' name. I want to pray, Lord God, for those that are sitting here that have heard this message this morning, that, Lord God, that if they, if they struggle with guilt, I just pray that, Lord, that you'd give them confidence right now to stand before you. Lord God, that the spirit of wisdom and of revelation may come upon them right now. Lord God, that they would know that truly their debt has been paid in full in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. So if that's you, you got to do it. Stand. If it's not, release you. Thank you. God bless you. If you want pray for something else, somebody will pray for you. Come up to the front. Otherwise, thank you, peeps.
2: Your love has freed us. We're free indeed. Spoken through our pain, reeling hope again. Your love has freed us. We're free indeed. Spoken to our pain. Spoken to our pain.